Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have a super califragilistically expialidocious special guest with us, Dr. Chris Kayser. Thanks for being here, Chris. My pleasure. Chris is the author of The Ethics of Abortion. Subtitle is Women's Rights, Human Life, and the Question of Justice. I'm going to hold it up for those uh, who are watching on YouTube. You can, of course, get the YouTube uh, episode on our channel. And for those listening on Apple uh, Podcasts, uh, I'll link this book in the notes, and you can click on the link and go right to Amazon. Although I would hope that you would get it from your local book dealer if possible. Support your local book dealer. The book is published by Rutledge which is an academic press. It's pretty standard academic press. I have the first edition, as uh, Chris pointed out when we were, before we started uh, recording, published in 2011. In fact, I still have, <laughs> as a bookmarker from when I first started reading, I first have the, the um, I have the carton packing list that was sent to my office at Pepperdine University Business and Management division uh because i used this for an ethics course there and um back back in the day so welcome chris thank you thank you good to speak with you and see you yeah good seeing you again we used to see each other quite often um, that's right at loyola marymount university where you're still professor of philosophy is that right you're still there? that's right yeah i'm actually chair of the department now okay so yeah. Working, working hard. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Well, and you're there in your office, I can tell, right? I am. That's yes. your office there in the third floor. Yep. Um, so we have, we're recording this on Friday, July 1st of 2022. Something happened last week that has caused a lot of people to be really happy and maybe as many people to be really upset and disoriented and confused. I don't know exactly what the percentages are, but it's probably tens of millions of people on either side. This is a highly contentious issue, the, uh, the issue of abortion. Of course, what I'm referring to is Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, very important. Both of those cases uh, decided on the same day in 1973 were reversed. They were both reversed uh, on the same day last Friday. So, Chris, um, what's your reaction to that? And uh, we'll get into your book. Yeah, so I was not entirely surprised. As you know, there was a leaked uh, draft of the majority opinion. And uh, so we had some sense of, at least at that point, what they were doing. But I was uh, definitely not of the mind that this was settled because justices often switch votes and change their minds. And, and especially in this case, there was, I'm sure, considerable pressure brought on all the justices uh, that were in the majority and even an assassination attempt on one of the justices. So, you know, until it actually came out, I was very much of the view that it could be like uh, Charlie Brown trying to kick the football and uh, Lucy's, you know, moves it away at the last second, because this happened before when I was in college, the uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood decision came out. And I was friends with a number of law professors. And I remember talking to one and he was very 
convinced that that opinion in 1992 would overturn Roe versus Wade. And of course, uh, when it came out, uh, that did not happen. You had three Republican appointed uh, justices that voted to uh, maintain Roe. And so I was you know, quite uh, concerned that this would repeat, history would repeat itself. And so when the opinion came out, I was uh, you know, very happy, of course. And I, I took the whole morning to read through uh, the whole opinion. So not just the majority view, but, but also the concurrences from uh, Thomas and from Roberts concurring in part. And then of course, also the dissenting views. So it was quite a bit of reading. Uh, it's very long. The whole thing, if I remember correctly, something like 270 pages or something. So I spent the whole morning reading that. And so I have some views on that, but I have to say, you know, because it's so long and I've only read it once, I haven't really studied it in depth. And so I, I wouldn't really be able to provide the kind of in-depth analysis that a law professor would give. But, but anyway, yeah, that's kind of, you know, where I'm at in terms of the Dobbs opinion. Now, thanks for sharing that. Um, I think before we get into the uh, academic philosophy um, issues here, which is going to be the focus of our time together here. So, you know, make sure you stay the whole time for all those arguments. Um, in case somebody is listening to this in the future and thinking they've heard Loyola Marymount and they think, okay, that sounds Catholic. That sounds like a Catholic school. And in case they are tempted to, they maybe don't know much about Catholicism or something like that. They might not know that there's a variety of opinions on the ground there in some Jesuit schools like Loyola Marymount and some other Catholic schools. Um, they might just write you off and say, uh, you're Catholic, maybe. Of course, I taught there and I'm not, I'm not Catholic, but uh, are you Catholic? Chris? I am. Yes. Okay. What I love about your book is that you make secular arguments. Is that how you would phrase it? Would you say secular or would you say based on reason? I guess it's better to say based on reason. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the, any person of goodwill can understand uh, the case against abortion. I would say it's similar to stealing. I mean, obviously, uh, Catholic teaching is that stealing is wrong, and it's one of the Ten Commandments. But I don't think you need to be a person of faith or Catholic or Jewish or Christian or anything to understand a basic moral principle that that stealing is wrong. And so in a similar way, I think the ethics of abortion is fully understandable from a entirely secular perspective, from a, the perspective of a mere reason, you might say. And part of the reason I think this is that there's very uh, prominent atheists who have come to the conclusion that abortion is seriously problematic. I'm thinking here in particular of uh, Bernard Nathanson, who performed something like 30,000 abortions and was one of the co-founders of the National Abortion Rights Action League. And as an atheist, he came to the conclusion that abortion is ethically wrong. And what prompted him to change his mind about abortion is the advent of a new technology called ultrasound. And with ultrasound technology, uh, Dr. Nathanson came to the conclusion that the individual in question is a living uh, human being. And so he came to the conclusion that he could no longer perform abortions and changed his mind. And again, this was entirely as an atheist. 
Another example is the yeah. philosopher Don uh, Marquis, or Marquis, depending how you pronounce his name. But but he he is an atheist, and he came up with actually probably the most famous argument against abortion in uh, the literature. And the argument's really quite simple. It it basically begins with the idea of thinking about why it would be wrong to kill you or me. So if someone kills you or me today, they don't take away our past. We still have the good things that happened to us in our past. But what they do is take away our chance for a valuable future. In other words, if you were to be killed today or I were to be killed today, what would happen is that you know, we would not have the new friends that we would have met you know, next month we won't have the chance to experience the beauty of the world, you know, beautiful sunset, uh, exciting movie, uh, tasty food. We won't be able to learn new things. We won't be able to grow. We would lose our chance for a valuable future. And the same thing is true if someone kills a newborn baby, right? The newborn baby is going to lose the chance for a valuable future. And the same thing is true of killing a human being prior to birth. To kill him or her is to take away his or her chance for a valuable future. So the very same reason that it's wrong to kill you or me is equally applicable to a newborn baby and equally applicable to a human being prior to birth. And so again, his argument, as you can see, is not at all based on the Bible or on you know, faith or on religion. Uh, as I said, he is an atheist. And it seems to me that his argument is something that any person of goodwill who's seeking justice could understand and accept. Makes sense to me. Uh, in case people maybe uh, don't quite know how philosophical argument works, maybe we could say a little bit about that because um, that might help uh, explain a little bit more what you mean by um, the consensus across uh, theist versus atheist. Um, because I think some people have this suspicion that would it not be for maybe a deep belief in God or, or something like that, that we just wouldn't pay attention to this that much. I mean, you might have a couple people out there, like, you know, some, some, there's some atheist over there, maybe he's got some kind of personal thing going on. I don't know, but, um, how does philosophical argument work? How can philosophy inform what the right decision would be for not only a woman in distress, a pregnant woman, but also a, a state legislator that's now empowered after Roe was struck down, is now empowered to cobble together a majority of the state legislature you know, by appealing to, um, hopefully to, by appealing to good arguments that would make sense, not just a political interest, but good arguments that make sense. How would you uh, characterize just philosophical argument in general? Yeah. Uh, so my way of thinking about it is that there's a real distinction between a theological argument on the one hand and a philosophical argument on the other hand. So in a theological argument, what you're doing is you're appealing to religious authority. So you're saying something like, um, the Bible says in Exodus that you shouldn't steal. 
and we should follow whatever the Bible says, therefore we shouldn't steal. So that's an example of a theological argument. On the other hand, you could have a philosophical argument that has the same conclusion, that we shouldn't steal. So what would that look like? Well, you might have a Kantian argument. You might say, well, we should respect humanity, whether in ourselves or in others, and treat humanity always as an end in itself, and never use any human being simply as a means. And then you might say, well, if you steal from someone, you are using them simply as a means, right? If I steal your phone, well, then basically what happens is you had to work, you know, an hour or two, how many hours to buy your phone. And so you worked those two hours for me uh, without, you know, giving your permission and your consent. So in a case like that, you'd say, I've made you into a slave. I've used you, in other words. So whenever you steal from someone, in effect, you're making use of someone without their permission. And so if that Kantian argument works, you'd say the conclusion is you shouldn't steal. But that's a philosophical argument. So I think with the ethics of abortion, that it is similar to the ethics of assaulting human beings or raping human beings or killing other human beings. In other words, you don't need any specific uh, theological premises. You don't need to appeal to the Bible or the Pope or the Dalai Lama or the Quran or Buddhism or anything like that. You can appeal to uh, principles that any person of goodwill can know. And in fact, people of goodwill do know. For instance, principles like all human beings have basic human rights. And if that's true, if you accept that principle, which is a principle that atheists accept and people of faith also accept, that all human beings have basic human rights. Well, then the question is, is a human newborn, is a human fetus actually a human being? And that's a question that science can weigh in on. In other words, if you were to classify a human newborn or a human fetus in terms of its uh, belonging to a species, all available evidence confirms that say the human newborn and the human fetus is a human being. This individual has human blood, the individual has human DNA, the individual arises from a human mother and a human father. There's no scientific evidence at all that the individual in question is a cat, a dog, a giraffe, a dolphin, and all available scientific evidence confirms that this is a member of the species Homo sapiens. So it seems to me there's no good reason at all to think that a individual that's brought into existence by a human uh, father and a human mother could be anything other than a human being. So if you put those two premises together, that all human beings have basic human rights, and that this individual is a human being, you get the conclusion that this individual has basic human rights. And the most basic of all human rights is the right to live. And the reason I say it's the most basic is that if someone does not have a right to live, then that individual loses all their other rights. So if you kill me today, you take away my right to vote. I can't vote in any future election, I'm dead. You take away my right to free speech. You take away my right to uh, join in others with, in associations. You take away all my rights if you kill me. So the right to live is the most basic and fundamental of all of our human rights. And so if it's true that all human beings have basic human rights, and if it's true that the individual in question, the human fetus, the human newborn is a human being, well, then this individual has basic human rights, including the right to live. 
you referenced the Declaration of Independence in uh, one of your chapters. Uh, just what you just said just reminded me of it. And I'm bringing it up because it's July 1st and uh, July 4th is coming up. And I thought maybe it's appropriate to say something about the Declaration of Independence here. The Declaration of Independence uh, talks about inalienable rights. Is that what you're talking about as far as basic human rights? The right yes, to... that's, that's correct. So the idea of inalienable human rights as found in the Declaration is a right that you cannot waive. So there are some rights you can waive, like my right to own uh, my watch, right? I could just give you my watch. And if you right. take my watch, you're not violating my rights. But there are other rights that we have that we cannot waive. So I'm thinking here about our right not to be a slave. In other words, if I come to you and say, hey, I, you know, I think it'd be an interesting experience or, uh, or I've heard you're paying people a million dollars to become your slave. Well, I, I don't have a right to, uh, to, that's an inalienable right. In other words, I can't waive that right and make myself a slave to someone else. And similarly, right. if I come to you and say, hey, you know, I think it'd be fun to die. So can you kill me? I can't waive my right to live. Even if I say to you, I want to die, if you were to kill me, you still would be charged uh, with murder. So the inalienable rights of the constitutions are the kind of rights that you can't just waive and give up. And when the declaration talks about the uh, right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I think it's important to note, and I've, I don't talk about this in the book, The Ethics of Abortion, but I do talk about it elsewhere, that you know, Jefferson is the original author of those words, right? We hold these right. truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there's some controversy about whether that is really inclusive. So in other words, there's some controversy about whether Jefferson and Adams and the other founders thought of those words as including, say, both men and women, both white people and people of color, and in another work, I actually explore that question in depth. And I've come to the conclusion that if, when we look at the historical evidence, that it's quite clear that, say, Jefferson meant that in an inclusive way. In other words, if you look at other works of Jefferson, it's very clear that he means, for instance, uh, that people of color actually are included in, you know, all men are created equal. Now, Jefferson didn't live that out. Obviously, he had slaves. But Jefferson actually was quite conflicted about that and recognized the inherent contradiction in holding that the African-Americans are uh, individuals that have human nature. And he thought that that's all you needed to have uh, these basic rights. And so Jefferson, you know, like many people, was inconsistent, right? He, he didn't right. practice what he preached. Right. But the actual doctrine that he had was very inclusive, that all human beings, male, female, black, white, Native American, do have these basic rights. So we're we're talking about human rights. And and the the way you get the inclusion is by defining human. Now sometimes we use the term person. Like in the in the declaration um it says all men are created equal. And then I think that's short term, short for man, which is short for human. 
Uh, I think that's what he meant. I, I agree with you on on the historical analysis on that. If you look up man in the dictionary, you'll see that uh, I think the first definition is usually a uh, human being or something like that. It's either one or two. It's it's a prominent definition, just short for human being. Um, yeah, it's a, a little species. Bit, species. That's right. So it's a little yeah. bit like if if someone says this is a man eating lion. Right. I mean, no, right. No woman. No woman says, "Oh, well, I can go in there. It'll be fine. I'm the lion won't hurt right. me at all." It's, right. It's I can common. send my I can send my child in there to play with the lion. It's a man eating lion, so it'll be. Yeah. You know, my kid sure. will be fine there. Right. In other words, yeah, yeah. sometimes you you and even today in in contemporary English, it's less common, sure. but still, even today, people speak of man in that broadest sense to yes. mean all human beings. That's right. Can you give an example? Yeah, there was an example recently, actually, in the uh, in the New York Times, and I don't mm-hmm. remember the exact year, but I can send that to you if you if you want me to look it up, because I actually uh, made a note of it. And it said something like, um, uh, how is, yeah, something like, it was something about the nature of man or the age of man or something uh-huh. like that, but yeah. it was clearly meaning, sure, you know, of all human beings. Yeah, yeah. I saw an article this week, this, uh, this year, uh, anytime NASA is talked about, they talk about sending an unmanned something into space. Right. It's just interesting. There's women that work for NASA, but they don't say unpersoned. They don't say that they yeah. say unmanned. It's common. It's common to use. And I was in the Navy it's still very common. Yeah. Or like talk about unmanned, uh, air, uh, unmanned strikes like using drones or exactly um um a lot of the designations for the jobs had the word man in there in fact if you if you join the navy the lowest rank that you can have is a seaman recruit mm-hmm. the word man is right there in, in the name of the rank yeah so it's it's uh it, and women join and they, that's their rank and no one thinks you can't be that, you know, because because uh, that's really the definition of of the, and it is still used. Sometimes that you're kind of shamed for using it that way, but it's proper English, I think, and it does uh, does stand for the proposition of uh, well, it stands for the class of beings that are of the human species. But in the Constitution, the Constitution uses the word person. Um, in the 14th amendment, it's used, it's, it's used in the fifth amendment, for example, no person, and I'm going to paraphrase, no person shall be, uh, deprived of life, liberty, or or due process of law, right? Life, liberty, life, liberty, or property (laughs) property without without due process of law, which is actually the row that was relevant to row because, yeah. Uh, it was incorporated against the states uh, and a similar issue is in this, the 14th amendment. So the word is person. Now where I'm going is um, the, the relationship. So much of the debate has been about the relationship between the class that is human being and the class that is person. Uh, And the, the the constitution does talk about persons so how would you say the relationship between human being and person is how do yeah, you determine I, that how do you figure that out yeah what i'd say is this that all human beings 
are persons, but theoretically there could be some other individuals who are not human beings who are persons. So the relationship between human and person would be similar to the relationship between say being a woman and being a human being. In other words, all women are human beings, but there are some human beings that aren't women. So I would say all human beings are persons, but there could be, at least theoretically, some persons that are not human beings. So what would that be? Well, for instance, I don't know what the whole universe. So is it possible that there are aliens that have an intelligent nature somewhere else in the cosmos? Yeah, maybe. I, who knows? You know, light years away or, or maybe not so far away. I, I have no idea. But if there were, say, uh, aliens who had a rational nature, who showed up on Earth and you know flew in here and started you know interacting with us, and we say, well, these are clearly uh, you know beings that have a rational nature. Well, then they would count as a persons. Uh, but whether or not that exists is you know I guess interesting theoretically, but it's really irrelevant for the question of abortion because the if you hold that all human beings are persons, you can just be agnostic about the question of are, are there non-human persons? You can say maybe yes, maybe no, it doesn't matter. The, the important point for our discussion is all human beings are persons. Now, why should we think that? Well, when we look back at history, we've seen many occasions where there were some human beings that were excluded from being counted as persons. Perhaps the most famous case was from the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court, in a famous case called Dred Scott, declared that African Americans were not, you know, persons, quote unquote. Yes, they're human beings, they're members of our species. Clearly, that's a scientific fact that can't be denied. But legally and ethically, the court excluded them as counting as full persons. Now, I think that was an enormous mistake. And in fact, every single time when we look back, and we've excluded a whole class of human beings from counting as persons. We have made terrible mistakes. So obviously with slavery, we did that. We did that with the treatment of uh, Native American peoples. We did that in many times and places with certain religious groups. You'd say, well, if you're my religion, you can't as a person. But if you're not my religion, you don't. But every single time we've ever divided the human family into those that count as persons and those that don't count as persons, we've always made a terrible, terrible mistake. And so I think that it is very wise now to be inclusive, right? Not to practice the ethics of exclusivity and say, well, if you're like me, you count as a person, but if you're different than me, a different race, a different age, a different religion, a different location, if you're disabled, if you're whatever it is, uh, well, you don't really count. I think every time we've ever done that, we've made a terrible mistake. So I, I'm a big advocate for the ethics of inclusion to say, look, every single human being counts. Every single human being has basic human rights. And I think that every time we practice this ethics of exclusion, we've made a terrible, terrible mistake. And we shouldn't do that again. The ethics of inclusion. It's going to be hard to argue against that with the new uh, inclusion, diversity, <laughs> equity stuff that uh, seems to be such the rage now. Uh, the Declaration of Independence is mentioned in the first edition of the book in page 61. I say that in case uh, there are fans of the United States organic law, which dec Declaration is uh, 
first uh, instance of the United States organic law. It's not mentioned in the index. So uh, it's on page 61. Um, you call, you, you contrast two different views, an endowment view and a functional view uh, of personhood. Um, can you uh, expand on that? Uh, because I think it, it ties in exactly with what you're saying about inclusion, the endowment view versus the functional view. And can you explain how the functional view of human personhood, uh, how, how that's featured into pro-choice arguments? Do you refer to those arguments as pro-life and pro-choice? Uh, yes, I refer to them in different ways, but sometimes pro-life and pro-choice, yes. Okay. Yeah, and the basic reason I do that is that I think that in general, you should talk about people in ways that they would accept. In other words, people that are pro-life uh, do not consider themselves anti-choice and people that are pro-choice don't consider themselves, you know, pro-death or pro-killing babies. Right. Right. So sometimes it's a little vague I, though. I mean, just, just on, just on terms of slogans, uh, it's a yeah. little vague. Yeah, no, it's kind of sloganeering. That's for sure. So let me yeah. get to your question about the functional versus the endowment account. So this is on page uh, 93 of the first edition, in case you want to get the book and follow along 93. Yeah. So many uh, advocates of abortion will say, uh, yes, this individual is a human being. So people like Marianne Warren, she doesn't deny the biological reality, the scientific reality that the human fetus is a human being, but she says, well, it's not a person. And you might say, okay, well, why? And she proposes that to be a person, you have to have these five characteristics. And one of the characteristics is you have to be able to communicate about an indefinite variety of topics and give an indefinite variety of messages. Now, if we think about that, that's a functional criteria of personhood. In other words, you have this function communicating and you have to be able to do it to a certain level. And if you fail to do it to that level, you don't count as a person and you don't have basic rights and therefore it's okay to kill you. Now, this kind of functional evaluation of persons I think is very, very problematic uh, for at least two reasons. One is that First of all, you're choosing just randomly some function to prioritize. So in her case, the ability to communicate. And you, you, know, you have to say, well, why that? Why not something else? Well, you know, why in other words, you could imagine a very intelligent person who, for whatever reason, was unable to communicate, right? Maybe they had a, a damage to their brain. Maybe they're in a drug-induced state. Uh, who knows? But you can imagine somebody who is fully self-aware, fully able to, uh, you know, was thinking and, and worrying and dreading getting killed, and yet, you know, couldn't communicate. But the second problem with it is the uh, arbitrariness of the level of communication. So communication obviously comes in various degrees, right? So you have somebody who can barely communicate at all, just, you know, grunts, the most simple messages. Uh, like maybe a baby around the age of, you know, one can only say, you know, one or two words. And then you have on the opposite extreme, I don't know who the most articulate and brilliant communicator in the world is, but I don't know, JK Rowling or something, right? I mean, wow, she can really communicate. She writes these amazing books. She is clearly a great communicator. And then you have all kinds of levels in between. So where exactly do you make the cutoff point? Do you say, well, once you can you know, once you have over 500 words, 
well, then you count as having enough communication to merit a right to live. But if you only have 499 words in your vocabulary, well, sorry, you know, we got to draw the line somewhere and, and you're out of luck. And so it's okay for us to kill you for any reason we want. That's well, we do. Let me push, let me push back a little bit. Yeah. I already know how you're going to respond, but I think okay. it'd be helpful for the le- <laughs> the readers or the listeners. Sure. Um, so we, we, uh, we pick arbitrary speed limits. I mean, 55 versus 54, that's the difference between, well, I guess it'd be 55 versus 56 in the ordinary case. Uh, if you're going 56 miles an hour, you could get a ticket. Um, if you're not, if you're going 55 and that's the limit, then it's just one, it's just an arbitrary number. Um, it's not like 56 is dangerous and 55 is not, but, um, so yeah. how do you deal with, uh, don't we just, uh, aren't we just kind of guesstimating? Yeah, no, I think you're right. There's no real reason say to have a speed limit of 55 rather than 56 or 54, Right. In terms of safety and whatever, I can't imagine there's any difference, significant difference between, you know, one mile an hour or more or one mile an hour or less. And in a similar way, you think with driving, right? Why is it 16 years of age? It could be 17 years. It could be 15 years. It could be 16.5 years. There's no real difference, I would say, in someone's maturity, uh, you know, 16 years versus 17 years. But the key difference is this. Driving is a kind of privilege it's not a basic right. In other words, there are many rights that are privileges and those rights typically come with responsibilities. So why does it make sense to say that there needs to be some kind of limit for driving, right? 16 years old or so. Why don't we let, you know, four-year-olds drive cars? Well, we don't let four-year-olds drive cars because we recognize that four-year-olds are lacking the foresight, the self-control, the judgment, the maturity, to safely drive a vehicle on the road and not harm themselves or not harm others. And we make a judgment that, well, around 16 years of age, you're more or less mature enough, capable enough, have enough foresight to, you know, mostly on average, be able to drive a car safely in terms of others. So in other words, the driving right comes with responsibilities to be a safe driver on the road. Similarly, the right to vote, right? That's a very serious responsibility. We have the entire uh, welfare of our society in, in, your, in the, the voters' hands. So you think, look, you have to have a certain maturity, a certain growth and development to exercise this responsibility appropriately. By contrast with basic human rights, like the right to live, the right not to be enslaved, the right not to be assaulted, those don't come with attendant responsibilities, right? In other words, a baby, you know, with a right to live or a two-year-old with a right to live, you know, there's no responsibilities that come along with that. That's an immunity that others shouldn't take away, you know, the person's right to live or shouldn't assault him or shouldn't torture them. But that's very different than rights that come with responsibilities like driving a car or voting. Those are rights that come along with responsibilities. So, so the basic differences between those kinds of rights. And then another basic difference is there's a huge difference between you know, you're a 15 and a half year old and you can't drive. Well, you might be kind of disappointed with that and say, well, it's really too bad. I wish I could drive. Uh, On the other hand, if your right to life was at stake, what you lose there is so dramatically more significant. And so I think there's really no comparison between a very uh, relatively trivial right, like the right to drive on the one hand, 
versus a totally basic right, like the right to live on the other hand. So it right, makes sense to, to treat those in different ways. Would you say it's fair to say that the right to life is coextensive or the same thing as the right not to be killed, murdered, manslaughtered? Uh, no, I would, I would define it slightly differently. So I would say the right to live is properly understood as the right not to be intentionally killed. Okay, say that one more time. For everybody. Yeah, I would say the right to life is best understood as the right not to be intentionally killed. Okay. And this uh, is what's this, what's the significance of that language, how you phrase it? Because there are cases, for instance, uh, and I'll talk in specifically about abortion here, but there are other cases too. There are cases in which someone gets killed, but they don't get killed intentionally. And so therefore their right to life has not in fact been violated. So in terms of the ethics of abortion, uh, the famous case is a woman with a gravid cancerous uterus. So the woman let's say is two months pregnant and she has cancer of the uterus. Well, the doctor might come to her and say, I'm very sorry, uh, you've got cancer. And uh, the only way to save your life is to remove the cancer. And so we've got to remove your uterus. Well, if she's two months pregnant, that's well before viability. And so if she has her uterus removed, the baby will die. There's no way to save, at least given current technology, there's no way to save a baby's life at only two months gestation. Now, on right. my view, if she does have the uterus removed, that is not a violation of the baby's right to live. Why? Because it's not a case of intentional killing. And why do I say it's not a case of intentional killing? Well, the doctor would be removing the uterus whether or not the woman was pregnant. In other words, if it was discovered, oh, we made a mistake. We, we thought you were pregnant, but you know the, the test we ran, we got it mixed up the results with somebody else's results. You're not pregnant at all. Well, the doctor is not gonna be like, oh, in that case, call off the, the removal of the uterus, right? Because the whole goal of this was to kill the baby. Well, no, the goal was simply and solely to remove the cancer. And as an right. unfortunate side effect of that, Yes, the fetus is going to die, but that was not the goal. That was not the means or the end of protecting the woman's life. That was a side effect of it. So if someone is killed as an unfortunate side effect of someone else's action, but that person was not intending to kill the individual in question, then I would say that person's right to life is not violated. Is that the same kind of thing that you would talk about in war, for example? If exactly. Civilians exactly. get killed accidentally. Okay. Exactly. Right. So in a just war, if you think of, uh, and you're not talking about negligence, right? That's like, right. Yeah. If I'm so, for example, if I'm negligent with a firearm or something, and then the bullet goes through the wall and kills my neighbor, yes, <laughs> or something, that would be, um. That's not the same thing what you're talking about. Exactly. And the law recognizes these distinctions. So the law draws a distinction between uh, first degree murder, for instance, and reckless homicide as a different kind of thing. So in other words, what's, what's murder or first degree murder? Well, that is when I intentionally kill you, right? I'm aiming to bring about your death. And that's a very different thing than say reckless homicide. And what would reckless homicide be? Well, like the case you gave. I'm just firing off a gun in Los Angeles over a city just for fun. 
and the bullet comes down for, and for kills July somebody. 4th or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And if I do that and a bullet comes down and kills somebody, I am guilty of a crime and I'm guilty of doing something morally wrong. And what would that be called? It would be called reckless homicide. In other words, I didn't take due care to preserve other people's lives, but that's not the same as murder. In other words, murder is when I'm trying to kill someone. I'm intending to kill the person. And then that also is different from a third case. And that would be where someone dies and their death is something that I was not intending. And I'm justified nevertheless in allowing their death. So let me give a different case from war. This is sometimes called a tactical bomber. So it's World War II and uh, the allies figure out where Hitler is. And they're like, well, we're gonna bomb Hitler and try to end the war. So they you know, send off the fighters and it turns out Hitler is um, staying in a villa that's right next to a school. And it's school time, the kids are gonna be in school. Is it okay for the tactical bomber to drop the bombs knowing that yes, the bombs will kill Hitler, but unfortunately, as a side effect, the bombs also are going to kill these innocent civilians, the poor school children there next door. Now, it's really terrible. It's a terrible situation. Obviously, you wish no kids would die ever in a war. But it seems to me it's justified to drop the bombs in order to kill Hitler to end the war, even though as a side effect that you're not intending as a means or as an end, the children in the school are also going to get killed. So this is sometimes called double effect reasoning or the principle of double effect. And so double effect reasoning governs cases like this where there are two effects of the action, one that is legitimate and good, killing Hitler, one that's very unfortunate and not intended as a means or as an end, say the kids next door getting killed. Um, so double effect reasoning would say it would be justified to do that. So if you're killing someone, or if your action is bringing about someone's death, but you're not intending it as a means or as an end, and you have a sufficiently proportionate reason for allowing that evil effect, like ending World War II by killing Hitler, it is permissible to allow the evil effect, even though it is regrettable and sad and really too bad, but it is permissible to allow that evil effect. How does one uh, come up with the sufficient issue? The, 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 like, for example... Uh, you gave a pretty extreme example of ending World War II, but what if I'm just late for work and um, I'm driving fast? I don't mean to kill anybody. You don't right. understand. I, you don't understand. I don't mean, but uh, you know, it's unfortunate. It's tragic, but um, is it the same case? Is it, it's very important for me to get to work on time. Yeah. Yeah. Get so my I class, would say, get there on, on time for my class. That's right. So, so your question is, is a good one. It's talking about, well, what, what is it to count as a proportionate reason? And this is in a way an underdeveloped area of double effect reasoning. In other words, some of these uh, aspects of double effect reasoning are quite well thought out and quite, there's pretty standard view about it. And this is not one of those, but I'll give you my view. My view is basically this. If you're thinking about a proportionate reason, the the good that you're losing or the good that you're harming or the evil you're bringing about needs to be commensurate with the good you seek. So in your case, is it really a proportionate good to get to work a few minutes uh, or you know, not be a few minutes late to work at the cost of running over some children in the road? Is that a reasonable trade-off? And it seems to me, I can't imagine anyone who would say that's a reasonable trade-off. 
right? I mean, you can imagine the police interviewing you and saying, well, hold it. You, you mean you were speeding because you didn't want to be two minutes late for work and you recognized there were kids there and you ran them over anyway. And you really thought that was a reasonable trade-off that these two kids die so that you're not two minutes late for work? I mean, no one, that's completely insane. So in other words, when you're talking about what is it to count as reckless behavior? Well, that seems like a classic case of reckless behavior, right? So, so one thing to consider, for instance, is the good that you lose or the good you damage or the evil you bring about as a side effect and how that compares to the good that you're seeking. So you're right. In the example I gave deliberately, the good I was seeking was so momentous, so unbelievably important. I mean, very few things ever in history of the world is more important than ending World War II. That's like the biggest conflict ever in the history of human beings. Millions of people were dying. Millions of lives were at stake. So the good there is tremendous, right? And I think you can see how trading off ending World War II at the unfortunate side effect of losing a few kids' lives is a trade that makes sense. Whereas trading off, well, I don't want to be late for work for I'm running over kids in the street. That's an, obviously a trade-off that makes no sense at all. So right. let me use a different example. If you had the, the woman who's pregnant, to save her life, is it a reasonable trade-off to allow as an unfortunate side effect the unborn child to die? Yes, it is. Let's say she has a minor headache and the doctor says, hey, I'll give you this medication and it'll take away your headache. Yes, as a side effect, it's going to cause the death of your son. Uh, that would be not a case, right? Because a minor headache is a relatively trivial thing, whereas someone dying is a very, very serious thing. And so that does not make sense as a proportionate reason. Is it just a numbers game in case in the case of war? I, I don't want to get too uh, caught up on the war example, but um, is it is it just number crunching? No, I wouldn't say it's only number crunching because sometimes it, one individual life actually is an overriding priority in terms of, say, saving that person or not allowing that person to die in comparison to more lives. So, you know, of course, the famous trolley example, right? There's a trolley come down. You could kill two people or, or five people, say. Uh, well, yes, one way to think about it is simply numbers. And other things being equal, yeah, it seems to me you should uh, intend to save the greater number and allow as an unfortunate side effect uh, the death of the fewer number. But I think that's not always true. So let's say you have the trolley example, and on the one side, you've got, say, uh, Winston Churchill and FDR, and on the other side, you just have five privates in the army. Well, I think given who Winston Churchill is and FDR, given their role in World War II, even though there are only two people, they actually outweigh, as it were, uh, the value in terms of the overall effort of the war, five privates in the, in the military. Now, I'm not talking about their basic human worth. On my view, all human beings have equal basic human worth, whether you're prime minister of England or whether you're a private in the army. But if you're thinking about who to save, not all people have basic worth in terms of who to save. If you're saving you know, the prime minister of England, the president of the United States, you know, some extremely important person whose life is going to make a difference for all kinds of people versus me, a philosophy professor, you know, I, I, I want to live. Yeah. But, but if it came down to it, you know, in the overall scheme of things, I'm not a prime minister. I'm not a president. I'm not the Pope. I'm just this minor philosophy professor. So if it came down to saving these really important people or me, I'd say, well, you, you know, 
I think he probably should save them. They're, they're actually more important. And in fact, if it came down to saving me or saving one of my kids, I'd much rather die than, than have one of my kids die. So in other words, when you're thinking about saving people, right. uh, it is relevant to take into account who they are, their role in the community, other things like that. Would it be relevant to take into account, just pushing this example a little bit further? Yeah. Would it be relevant to take into account if, if FDR was terminally ill? Yeah, or, it would. Or, or Winston Churchill was had a, had a condition that rendered him... It was it was a sudden condition, um, and it was certain that he had it, and it would render him strategically completely useless. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you go back war. to the Tirali example, and you say um, we know somehow that both Winston Churchill and FDR are going to die next month. They've got terminal cancer, and the doctor said it's you know a month or less. Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, exactly. So in other words, my argument wasn't so much that always save the prime minister no matter what. But my argument was rather that the role of an individual in a community is relevant for determining who to save in cases of triage, right? In cases where you can't save everybody, you can only, there's only so many, you know, seats on the lifeboat. Yes. Save the more valuable people in terms of their role in the community rather than the less valuable people. I, I think somebody might be listening to this in the future and thinking, then it does sound like a number crunching game though, because even though for that step, you're just, the numbers aren't, that it's not clear what the numbers really are. Uh, the reason you're saving Churchill and, and FDR in those cases is that they are instrumental in, or strategic, maybe however you want to put it, yeah, in saving many, many more lives than those privates. I don't know. Yeah. Is that well, how you put it? So what I'd say is, yes, that's true, but but just saving raw numbers is not the only factor. So what I mean is, I think who to save is a matter of practical wisdom. And practical wisdom is the virtue that takes into account all the relevant circumstances, all the relevant situations, and makes the best judgment about the means to choose to achieve a good end in those individual circumstances. So let me give you a different case. You've got a um, trolley going down the the tracks. On the one side, there's uh, three people. On the other side, there's only one person. But let's say that the three people on the one side are all over 100 years old, right? They're, you know, super, super old. And then the one person on the other side is a two-year-old. Where should you direct the the trolley? Well, I would say away from the two-year-old, right? Again, not because a two-year-old has intrinsic value greater than people that are 100 years old, but rather because if you have people that are 100 years old, their life expectancy is a year or two, maybe, (laughs) maybe less. Almost certainly they're going to die, you know, very, very quickly. Whereas the little two-year-old has maybe 80 more years of life. And so, yeah, I, I, if I were directing the, the trolley, I would direct it away from the two-year-old to give that little child, you know, 80 years of life and, and accept as an unfortunate side effect that these 90 or that these three people that are all over a hundred years old will die. So it's not simply a matter of numbers. Gotcha. Well, that's, 
that's a really good example of how philosophical reasoning takes place. Some people might be listening to this and they, they might not quite get it. They might think there's no, this just means there's no answer, you know, cause you could come up with stuff all the time. That, that's well, definitely not what you're saying. You're saying this is actually how you get the answer. You, you, you got to reason it out. But for example, if someone might say, I can just see my students saying this, what if the, what if the two-year-old is Hitler? And yeah. You know, the, uh, the hundred year olds are all medal of honor winners from world war two. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, that wouldn't make any sense in this example, but, but, uh, maybe we're medal of honor winners in the civil war ending slavery or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I no, I think you're right, but in a way that is totally compatible with what I just said. So what I, what I said earlier was practical wisdom takes into account all the relevant circumstances of the particular situation. And so if you change the relevant circumstances of the situation, well, then you're going to change the outcome of your practical wisdom. But practical wisdom is not anything goes. So in other words, practical wisdom presupposes the idea that there are certain things you should not do. In other words, I don't debate about, well, should I murder this person? Well, let's consider the pros and cons and, you know, who are, well, no, that's the kind of action that is for people of goodwill excluded from deliberation, right? We, we ought not, we, we should not deliberate about murdering people, about raping people, about enslaving people. Those kinds of actions are the kinds of actions that people of goodwill just don't do. On the other hand, if you're talking about actions that are not intrinsically evil, actions that, you know, very well, you know, directing a trolley one way or the other, well then, yeah, to make a good decision, you need to take into account all the relevant circumstances, think carefully about it, and then on the basis of all the relevant circumstances, then make an informed decision about the right way to move forward. So, so you, yeah, I do you, think you're right in the sense that, yeah, you can add cases, you can add circumstances to individual cases that change the right, right, proper right. response. That seems totally yeah. right. Yeah. And, and you're, I guess the point I was trying to show in case some people are listening to this and they think there's no, there's no answer. You don't get an answer. I think we're trying to say the opposite. We're saying we're not just making stuff up here. There's a principled way you can go about this where if, even if the answer is not quite clear, um, there's helpful ways to maybe edge ourselves in the right direction. Have you ever seen the show Dexter? Have you ever heard of that? It's a series. I've heard of it. I've never seen it. No, it's an, it just occurred to me because it's about a serial killer yeah. that kills serial killers. Oh, okay. So yeah. the important feature of the show is that the audience knows beyond a reasonable doubt, the audience does, Yeah. that the victim of the murder is guilty of some of the most heinous things you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's no public authority in the script, in the story, that has recognized beyond a reasonable doubt the the guilt of of the victim of the murder and of course what the main character is doing the main character is a sociopath i'm not totally uh, convinced that it's uh, coherently portrayed as being a sociopath because he has connection with his sister i don't think sociopaths have connections with anybody but uh leave that aside he's got 
this he's sort of the hero of the of the story and um the intuitions that are played on are that uh you know the difference between guilt and innocence and uh, of course the guy is i think the assumption is that the guy is carrying out what the public authority is incapable of doing on its own what do you think about the death penalty so i've written i've written about this actually so I am against uh, the death penalty. I'm not in favor of it. Uh, I do think, though, there's a very important distinction between the death penalty and uh, abortion. So even though I personally am against the death penalty, I think that we ought not to equate abortion uh, with the death penalty. And the reason should be fairly obvious. In the case of a, the death penalty, you have a criminal who has uh, done something very seriously wrong and goes through a trial and has it at defense attorney, and then the criminal is judged guilty of this very serious crime by a jury of uh, his peers. And then there is a process of appeals of the, you know, uh, the sentence to death. And eventually, sometimes after years and years, the person actually is put to death. The difference between that and abortion is quite obvious, right? In the case of abortion, the prenatal human being is not a criminal. The prenatal human being is innocent. The prenatal human being has done no uh, crime to anyone, uh, has not been accorded a defense attorney, has not gone through a trial, has not had the opportunity to appeal the sentence. And in fact, what happens is you have uh, no process of law whatsoever and an individual deprived of their life. So I am against the death penalty, uh, but I also think it's a mistake to say that the death penalty and the case of abortion, while well, they're just exactly the same, I think they're really quite radically different. That makes sense. And we're back. Um, getting into your book, Chris, um, the methodology of the book is to present as carefully and comprehensively as possible pro-choice arguments uh, and then critiques of those arguments in favor of an alternative argument that has the conclusion that abortion is impermissibly moral, impermissible morally. Um, and it might be kind of striking for people to know that there are some pro-choice arguments that justify or seek to justify infanticide so the the procedure of your book in the early chapters of your book talk about when this feature of human personhood begins and uh you take the question in chapter two of does personhood begin after birth some point after birth chapter three takes the question of does personhood begin at birth um does personhood begin during pregnancy is the subject of chapter four and then chapter five is does personhood begin at conception and that's the view that you uh defend that's correct right chapter okay. five okay so um in case folks aren't inter are 
they're interested, but they maybe are not aware of how pro-choice arguments have gone in the wake of Roe. Some are before Roe. I think Thompson was writing in uh 1971 i believe something like that so that was a little bit before roe versus wade um so chapter two does personhood begin after birth there are some pro-choice arguments that defend infanticide infanticide is the is the moral and maybe even lawful killing intentional killing of a human being after birth someone who would be a citizen of the United States under the 14th amendment if they were born in America. Yeah, so. that's correct. That's correct. So the, the method of the book is to start with things that everybody agrees to pro-choice and pro-life. So everybody agrees that you and I, people, you know, 10 years old have a right to live and have basic rights. And as you move earlier in the lifespan, that's when questions begin. So everybody agrees, you know, five-year-olds have a right to live. Everybody agrees uh, four-year-olds have a right to live. But when you get a little bit younger than that, the controversy begins. So there was a recent article by Alberto Giablini and Francesca Minerva called After Birth Abortion, Should the Baby Live? And in this article, they, they make a case that the right to live requires that you're aware that you exist. And secondly, that you value your own existence. Now, if that's true, the question then becomes, okay, well, when do human beings become aware that they exist? And basically, psychologists have come to a consensus. The consensus of psychologists is that human beings around the age of two years old are able to understand that they exist. So one way they test this is by means of what they call the mirror test. So if you have a two-year-old and you put a little mark on the two-year-old's head, and put them in front of a mirror, the two-year-old will recognize that as themselves. And so they'll go like this and you know, try to get the mark off. Whereas say a, a child at one and a half years old will act like a dog. When the child sees itself in the mirror, the child thinks it's another little child. Just like a dog seeing a dog in a mirror will you know, think it's a different dog. So basically before the age of around two, human beings don't recognize uh, themselves, and they don't have self-awareness, self-consciousness. So Giobellini and Minerva's view would be that until the age of around two, where the individual has knows that they exist and values their own existence, that they're not yet a person, and yet, and at that point, do not have basic rights, including the right to live. And so they, they write in their article that there's no reason to ban post-birth abortion. So they're pro-choice, not only for pregnancy, but also after birth up to around the age of two. Now, this would vary, right? You have precocious children who maybe at a year and a half would recognize themselves. You have mentally handicapped children who might not recognize themselves even at age four or five. But most, most human beings ballpark would be around the age of two. So going back to the endowment view versus the functional view, this would be an example of the functional view on full display uh, exactly the functional view of personhood that is personhood it amounts to fulfilling or um instantiating however you want to put it uh some properties set of properties that are necessary conditions there might be some that are another condition that together with the necessary conditions are a, 
jointly necessary and sufficient conditions for personhood. And um, now the way you're arguing against this, would it be fair to say, Chris, that you're taking uh, agreement, what we're abhorred by, and you're using that as evidence against the view? Now, so my question would be, is agreement, um, uh, or is that a principled, is that a pr practical way to argue? Meaning, if I can start with what people agree with, I can kind of use peer pressure <laughs> or it, to get you to agree with me, or is, is it a principled, uh, more principled way to argue for pro-life? Well, the reason or, I start, or against pro-choice, I should say. Yeah. So the reason I start this way is basically uh, kind of Aristotelian uh, methodology. So Aristotle talked about beginning with things that are more easily understood. And that makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, when you're teaching someone mathematics, right, you don't start off with calculus. You start off with adding and then you do subtracting and then you do multiplying and then you do, do division. So there's kind of a, a proper order to understanding. And so I think obviously there's huge controversy in the ethics of abortion. And so I wanted to start with things that everybody would agree to. And I think everybody agrees to the idea that, you know, the standard uh, adult has basic human rights. So that's right? a pedagogical strategy. It's not a, exactly. just a mere pra pragmatism. That's right. It's a pedagogical strategy. I want to start off with what's most clear. So yeah. then if everybody agrees, people like you and me have a right to live. Then the question is, well, when did we get that? Right. When did we gain the right to live? Did we have now it at the, 10 years old? Yes. Did yeah. we have it at eight years old? Yes. And you keep moving backwards and backwards. And then you can figure out, well, yeah. let's consider each line and consider the pros and cons of each line. So one line would be the line we just talked about around the age of two, when you right. realize you exist and you value your own existence, that's when you gain your right to live. But I, I don't just leave it at... Well, most people would think this is crazy. So that's the end of the story. Right. I think there's very good reasons to reject their view. And we can talk about that if you want. Yes, definitely. I did want to mention, though, that in the chapter we're talking about, you do mention the, the differences of opinion in history, for example, in the Roman Empire. So during the Roman Empire, you couldn't appeal to everybody agrees this because well, they allowed infanticide, right? That's right. They didn't think, and, and, and in fact, they would, uh, they would allow infanticide for reasons that would be abhorrent to us, for example, gender-based infanticide. And I'm talking about gender in the uh, way it has been uh, classically understood throughout human history as coextensive with sex, um, meaning little girl, is a, a little human female perfectly uh, more they would probably say more legitimately to allow a female uh, little girl to perish and sometimes it's not infanticide directly it's just letting them let letting the dogs have them yeah the exposure yeah. exposure yeah. um pretty horrific it's horrific to yeah. us well I, I but, wish. Um, how would you wish, deal with that? Because that's well, closer to Aristotle. Well, yeah. So I'm not saying Aristotle's right about everything. Um, you know, Plato talked about uh, infanticide and seemingly approved it in the Republic. 
uh, I would just, I do think it's a sound pedagogical principle to begin with what's more easily known and to move to, towards what's more difficult to know. So that's kind of the, the method I'm using in the book. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, infanticide is not confined to ancient Greece. Uh, we have many cases in the modern world, both in China and in India, of sex-based infanticide, where you have either sex selection abortion of females or infanticide of females. And so in uh, China and India, they estimate there's around 30 million missing women, right? They've been killed either in utero or as babies. Wow. And so this is a wow. very, very serious issue. Yeah, you, you didn't- That's a holocaust. That? That's a holocaust. Yeah. No, and it, it's, it's tragic, obviously, for the loss of that. And it has unbelievably bad societal consequences um, that we can talk about if you want. But no, this is a very, uh, I, I wish it were only ancient Greece did things like this. Unfortunately, the modern world uh, continues to do things like this. So tell us about how you respond to the Minerva article and the uh, the Italian name. I forget how you say it. How do you, Gio uh, Bellini, Gio Bellini and Minerva. Yeah, I've read that article. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to the two year old functional personhood? Yeah. yeah. So I would say that there's many serious problems with their article. Um, so one of them is this. They suppose that to be harmed, you have to be in a position to experience that as a harm. And that seems to me completely false. So imagine right now a nuclear bomb goes off and you're completely vaporized. And this would be instantaneous right? You wouldn't experience anything as a harm. At the speed of light, you would be dissolved into, you know, atoms and you, you wouldn't experience anything. Or let's say you're sound asleep and someone comes up to you with a shotgun and blows your head off when you're sleeping. Again, you would, we wouldn't experience anything. You just be out. Um, so there are many cases where people get harmed, but don't experience it as a harm. So their supposition that you have to be in a position to experience it as a harm is uh, obviously false. Um, a second problem with their view is they suppose that the reason killing is wrong is that you desire to continue living, right? Remember their view that you have to know you exist and desire to continue living. That also is wrong. Think about a suicidal teenager, right? They're on top of a building ready to jump off and end their lives. So according to their own lights, they do not consider their life worth living. But I think it would be obviously wrong to push them off the ledge, you know, to shoot them, say, well, you know, it's not really wrong. They didn't want to continue living. Well, that's true, <laughs> but it's still wrong to kill the suicidal uh, teenager. Um, another problem uh, with their view is that it supposes what, what's called body self-dualism. So the idea of body self-dualism is that there's my thoughts, beliefs, desires on the one hand, and then there's me as a living human being on the other hand. So their view is this, I, quote unquote, don't come into existence until after I'm born. In other words, I, because in, in the article, they say at one point, well, if our mothers had killed us when we were in utero or killed us after we were born, they wouldn't have killed us, the authors of this article, because we quote unquote, came into existence only later when our thoughts, beliefs, ideas, 
you know, came into existence. So the idea, in other words, it's a little bit of a Cartesian idea, right? I think, therefore I am. In other words, you don't really exist until you start thinking and reflecting and have these beliefs. But that I think is totally wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong can be seen from cases of multiple personality disorder. So what is that? So imagine I have this disorder. So there'd be, you know, Chris, the philosophy professor, then there'd be Hoist, the jujitsu master, and then there'd be Jacques, the, the French cook, and Olivia, you know, the painter, and I'd have all these different alternate personalities. And if uh, Hoist, the jujitsu instructor, if, 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 you know, he showed up, I would forget all about philosophy and all I know about is jujitsu. And I'd have desires to be a jujitsu champion and I have all these different sets of desires. And then let's say that person's gone and all of a sudden Jacques shows up. And now all I care about is French cooking. Now, if you're a psychiatrist and you come along and say, hey, I've got a treatment for multiple personality disorder. I'm going to give you this pill, take the pill. You know, Jacques is going to go away. Olivia will go away. Hoist will go away. You'll be back to being only Chris. Say, say I take the pill. Now, is the proper analysis of the action of the psychiatrist, he just killed three people, right? Because in taking the pill, you get rid of Olivia, you get rid of Jacques, you get rid of Hoist. Or is a proper diagnosis that the psychiatrist is not a killer, but rather is a healer who has healed this one individual who had these multiple personalities? Well, I would say the proper diagnosis is, yes, he healed me, right? In other words, there aren't really three different persons or four different persons all inhabiting this one body. And really there's only one individual. The one individual is me. The one individual is this individual human being, this individual rational animal. So it's a mistake to think of myself as being distinct from my body, right? I am this individual human being. I am this body. So when I taste something, when I see something, that's me tasting it. The alternative leads to absurd conclusions like, well, has your wife ever kissed you? Well, if I hold body self-dualism, I say, well, no, my wife's never kissed me because I, properly speaking, my thoughts, beliefs, desires, whatever, has my wife ever kissed that? Well, no, she's kissed this cheek, but not me, properly speaking. That's absurd. So body self-dualism is absurd. And since their view is based on body self-dualism, their view is absurd. Your, your audio is not on. It is odd the way we talk sometimes um, about stuff. We never say, it's, someone says, did you get in a car accident? You don't say, "My well, my body did. Um, right, exactly. We, we do. Uh, do you believe that, uh, do you believe in a life after death? Do you believe in heaven? That's a good question. It's, it's, we can talk about it if you want. It's obviously irrelevant for the ethics of abortion, but we can talk well, about Well, actually, it. I'm not sure it is, but okay. uh, because- it seems to me that if you believe that a fetus goes to heaven or uh, uh, maybe let's say Minerva and Giablini get their way. And, and now we have uh, one and a half year olds we're we're offing here. And yeah. Do, what happens to them theologically and where I'm going with this, I just, just quickly is their body's not going to heaven. So do they go to heaven? I'm, I'm just not sure what happens to the self does the self decompose? Yeah. So my view is similar to Aquinas. And so my view is something like this. 
that what I am is a human being, a rational animal. And so what I am is this unity of the physical and the, and the spiritual, a unity of body and soul. So what happens at death is this, the body and soul separate. Now, everyone recognizes that part of who we are uh, is, remains after we, we die. So whether you're an atheist or a believer in God or whatever, everybody recognizes after people die, there's something left over, the corpse. Now, Aquinas thought there's something else left over after we die too, the soul. And so the soul would continue to exist after death, just as the corpse continues to exist after death. And you can imagine the corpse um, being, um, you know, maintained frozen or something. It could, it could exist indefinitely if it were frozen. So something remains after death, the corpse and also the soul. Now, Aquinas's view is this, though. But they're not the, the same thing, though, right? That's right. Yeah, they're two different things. Exactly. So Aquinas's view, though, is that properly speaking, I cease to exist when I die, but part of me continues to exist, the soul. Another part of me, the corpse, continues to exist for a little while after I die and then decomposes. So if that view is right, then what you'd say is when someone gets killed, whether they're killed at 25 uh, years old or 25 weeks after birth or 25 weeks in utero, whenever they're killed, there is uh, a disunity that arises between body and soul. And then part of them continues to exist. And then part of them uh, decomposes and ceases to exist. So that's Aquinas's view. And I, I accept that. So the I ceases to exist. That's me. But part of me, which doesn't exist anymore, continues? Yeah, so I cease to exist. I meaning this individual human being. So at death, it's the destruction of an individual human being. Okay. But at death, what happens is there are uh, remnants, you might say, that remain in existence after death. So obviously, the corpse remains in existence after death. Now, you could have a case where there's a nuclear bomb. The corpse itself is exploded into, you know, into, into molecules. And but in general, right? Just with that, if I die of a heart attack today, my corpse will be there, right? So you might say part of who I was continues to exist, the corpse. And on Aquinas's view, part of who I am continues to exist, my soul. So my body and my soul used to be united, and then at death, what happens is they become disunited. They fall apart. So these then you have the body remaining. The corpse. These are separable parts? Correct. Okay. All right. Um, earlier, you said something about Descartes, and I just wanted to say, I think that Descartes, correct me if I'm wrong, thought that thinking was a sufficient reason for epistemologically for thinking that I exist, not that it was necessary. Do I have that wrong? That's right. No, okay. I agree. I agree. Oh, okay. All right. Um. So now a lot of people nowadays agree that personhood does definitely apply to human, uh, born human beings. There's definitely the citizenship issue, which is a legal issue. Um, that's probably not going away. 
So then you have the issue, which is relevant to the row decision of does the question of does personhood begin at birth? And it does seem like that was the position of Roe and Doe versus Bolton combined because uh, Doe versus Bolton, if you don't know, was a, a companion case to Roe that decided that maternal health was so broadly defined that, that um, virtually any reason that the, the mother came up with would effectively have to make it legal to uh, carry out the abortion, even up until birth. Would you say that's correct? That's uh, right. Yes, basically correct. Um, okay. the, the Doe versus Bolton and Roe versus Wade did not totally uh, exclude the idea of the unborn having some rights. So for instance, in California, there was a, a notorious case of a guy who murdered yeah. his pregnant wife. Peterson, Scott Peterson. Yes, Scott Peterson. And he was charged with double murder. Right. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And there's other Basically. cases too where uh, the Page unborn. 43. Are, Page that's 43, right. you mentioned that. Yeah. And there's other cases too where the unborn are recognized as having rights. So I think it's not quite legally accurate to say, well, what Roe versus Wade did is just say the unborn have no rights at all. What happened with Roe is there was an inconsistency introduced in law, where in some cases, right. the unborn were recognized as having basic rights, but then in other cases like deliberate abortion, they weren't. And so uh, that was a kind of inconsistency that did exist uh, before Roe was overturned. So it's, yeah, it's not quite correct to say that Roe meant that personhood began at birth. I guess birth would be a sufficient condition for personhood under the Roe. But actually, a, a sufficient condition during pregnancy would be the mother's mental states. The mother, if the mother wants the baby, like Lacey Peterson. I, I don't think that's accurate either, though, because if Lacey Peterson were driving that day to had an appointment that day to get an abortion, and then you know in the morning, her husband killed uh, her and and her unborn son Connor, uh, he still would have been charged with double murder even if there was uh, adequate like evidence about her mental states at that time? I think so. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting. Well, you have this question of, does it begin at birth? What's the main problem with saying it begins at birth? Well, uh, you, one of the main problems is that it is a kind of a magical view of personhood. Why in the world should being born magically give you a right to live? Um, after all, there are many other kinds of creatures that are born. Dogs are born, cats are born, rats are born. Well, they don't have a right to live. So why in the world would just being born, you know, again, magically give you a right to live? Um, moreover, being born seems to presuppose that your location is your key to the right to live. Uh, but if that's true, then you have to get these bizarre situations like when there's a fetal surgery sometimes they remove the fetus from the uterus and do surgery. So then you'd say the individual in question doesn't have any basic rights. And then during surgery gains all the basic rights that you or I have. And then when put back in the utero loses the basic rights. And then if there's another surgery would gain them again and then put him back in utero again would lose them again. And then after being born would gain them a third time. That's, that's crazy. You, you don't gain and lose basic human rights back and forth, back and forth. 
Another problem with birth is right now they're working on artificial uteruses. So if those come into existence and scientists are working on those in the United States and also in Japan, then what you're gonna have is human beings that are conceived through in vitro fertilization, go through the whole process of gestation in a artificial incubator, and then eventually are removed from the artificial incubator. And so they would have never been born of a woman and yet they would have equal basic rights to you or me, despite the fact that they were never born. So being born is completely irrelevant to having basic human rights. Gotcha. All right, so um, dispensing with the issue of birth. Now I'll just say this though, we typically talk in a pro-choice manner, don't we? Because, because if Chris, if I ask you how old you are, and when I say how old that building is, I mean when did the building come into existence? That's what I mean. If I ask you how old your car is, I mean when did that car come into existence? But if I ask you how old you are, uh, and you're pro-life, you probably will tell me when you were born. Yeah, that's correct, and I think there's so, a good reason for that. Okay. Because, yeah, because birth is different than conception in a number of ways. First of all, birth is a public event, not always, but almost always. I mean, yes, you have a very rare case where there's a woman who is alone in a cabin and gives birth, fine. But almost always, there's people, you know, helping with the birth. Typically, at least in the United States, there's many witnesses. So that is totally different than conception. Conception in human beings, other than in vitro, is internal to the woman and a matter that, you know, even the woman herself normally does not know when she's conceived. So there's a kind of window of possible dates on which she could have been conceived, when she could have conceived. And so the woman herself may know the last time she had sex, but even if she knew that, she doesn't know exactly when she conceived. It could have been any number of, uh, any one of a number of days. And so it makes sense to mark the beginning of, uh, you know, how old are you or when were you born as this marker, because it's a public event as opposed to a private event. It's an event that can be easily known as opposed to an event that is unknown. So it makes sense that we celebrate birth. And, and there's a third reason too, that birth is quite dramatic. And so we tend to, you know, it is memorable when something dramatic happens, whereas conception isn't dramatic. In other words, a sexual encounter could be very dramatic, but the actual conception could take place that day, or I think it's up to six days after. But the conception itself isn't dramatic. In other words, there's no, you know, fanfare or whatever that goes on. So it makes a lot of sense to mark, uh, you know, how old you are, when were you born as the significant event, because it is public, it is memorable, it is something that typically almost always there are witnesses to, whereas none of those things are relevant for conception. Although you're saying, strictly speaking, though, it would be false to say that's how old you are. Yeah, strictly speaking. That's okay. Correct. All right. So it's, it's, it's like uh, an exception that ha is well warranted uh, in terms of how we talk. Um, that's right. About and, but even how we talk, we do actually talk uh, as if our existence was prior to birth in many cases. So for instance, people right. that are strongly pro-choice have pictures, sonograms 
of their children, you know, on the on online or whatever, or in the baby book or whatever. And if someone says, well, who's that? Oh, they'll say, oh, that was my son, you know, John Paul. Oh, that's Elizabeth. This was taken when Elizabeth was uh, six months. That's right. So we yeah. do talk that way. That's right. Very yeah. regularly. Nevertheless, yeah. I still think it makes sense to mark birth as the, uh, yeah, public way of recognizing yeah. someone's, uh, you know, someone's right. uh, yeah. arrival right. into, you know, interactions. The way, the way we talk is a little, it's just, it, 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 that's the lovely thing about the discipline of philosophy is it's it's not always clear from how we talk that what's going on there like sometimes someone will say i'm i'm going to be a mother she's already pregnant that's right the, the row court uses the term mother to refer to the plaintiff yeah seeking the mother seeking an abortion anybody similarly situated in that class is referred to as a mother <laughs> right and, um, and and you think about so, think about fathers too so you're already a father you're already a mother but you, yeah you know. but think about how we talk about fathers if a woman's pregnant uh is is she not you know if she's married she's maybe not asked this but if she's not married she can be asked who is the father right not who will be the father when the baby's born who right. is the father yeah that's good yeah, so, really good you know, the it. fact is the way we talk does recognize the reality that, yeah. you know, he is the father of her child that she's carrying right, right now. Right, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Before that's the child good, born. That's good. What would you say now? The next chapter is does personhood begin during pregnancy? And a lot of people's understanding of Roe was that that uh, viability uh, with Roe and then Casey, it was uh, actually uh, sorry, it was not viability at row. It was uh, the trimester. You got to go all the way back for the trimesters. And then Casey replaced that with a viability standard of where state legislatures could come in and, and um, regulate yeah, more heavily. That, so if I could, if I could interfere here a little bit, that actually isn't, isn't accurate. Yeah. So, so row did do the trimesters. That's true. But row also talked about viability as a very significant uh you know, moment in the growth of the human being in utero. What Casey did is overturn Roe right. in that. In other words, Casey rejected viability. So Justice oh, okay. Sandra Day O'Connor said that Roe was on a crash course with itself. And she's right, because basically viability yeah. is a shifting standard. In other words, what was viability in, you know, 1900 and viability in 1970 and viability today are three totally different things. Right. And the, as I mentioned earlier, right now there are scientists working to move the line of viability all the way back mm. to conception. So viability just means Crazy. the ability of the um, individual to survive outside the uterus with yeah. artificial help. Yeah. So right yeah. now it's around 23 weeks. Uh, it used to be around 28 weeks at the beginning of the 20th century. It was you know, even later than that. And again, at the end of the 21st century, my best guess is it'll be conception. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems with viability. In other words, it can't be the case that your basic rights hinge on, you know, what the scientists are doing in the lab today. And if they come out with a big breakthrough, then all of a sudden your basic rights shift radically. That, that seems completely impossible. As Peter Singer pointed out, and he's a person who defends infanticide, he said, the same individual say in Los Angeles is viable. And then uh, her mother gets on a plane uh, and flies to, you know, South Dakota is off in the wilderness somewhere. 
Now, all of a sudden, that individual is not viable. And then she returns to the big city near a hospital, and the individual that she's carrying now is viable again. Well, that's what I call the episodic problem, right? Our basic rights can't arrive and then leave and arrive again and leave again. Right. Our basic rights are stable. They're with us as long as we exist, not coming and going back and forth. But viability is problematic in that way. And then for the final way viability is problematic, or one more way, is no one has given, and the recent Dobbs decision points this out, no one has given a satisfactory account of why viability is relevant at all. Right. Right. Think about cases of conjoined twins. So there are some cases of conjoined twins where one twin depends on the other twin's body to continue to live. Right. And no one says, oh, well, therefore, this individual, you know, conjoined twin isn't really a person. We can just kill her. You know, we can torture her. Well, no one thinks that. Right. And so, in fact, no one really thinks that viability is the key feature that differentiates human persons from human beings that we can treat as if they have no basic rights. Yeah. So the uh, to summarize, the personhood can't begin during pregnancy because any demarcation during pregnancy would be arbitrary. That's right. Run, run into serious problems. That's right. Yeah. So okay. all the different ones that have been put forward have very serious problems. I'll, I'll just talk about one briefly. And Sent personhood you. is not the kind of thing that's arbitrary that we got to no. add that to it. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. So some people say, well, your, your moral worth or your moral value depends on sentience and sentience is understood as the ability to experience pain. So they'd say, well, early in pregnancy, the fetus can experience pain, you know, late in pregnancy, the fetus can, and therefore we draw the line at sentience. I think this is completely ridiculous. Um, for one reason it's ridiculous is that if you really hold that view, well, then you have to have a very strong uh, position against some adult human beings. There are some human beings who have chronic insensitivity to pain syndrome. It's very rare, but these human beings literally can experience no physical pain. So if you were to chop off their hand, it'd be like you, you know, trimming your fingernails, you could chop off their ear. That's like you getting a haircut. They just, they don't feel any pain at all. But I think it's clearly the case that they have basic human rights. If you murder some 20 year old that has this condition, that's just as wrong as murdering any other 20 year old. So the ability to experience suffering is irrelevant for having basic human rights. Moreover, um, you know, rats experience pain, uh, worms experience pain, even insects experience pain. Are we really to hold that a rat, a worm, and a wasp has basic rights with you or me? I find that very hard to believe. So I think we should reject the idea that sentience is the key factor that distinguishes those individuals that have basic moral worth from those individuals that don't. A lot of people that are pro-choice seem to um, care more about animals and trees than they do unborn human beings. It's interesting. So what, what, when you say that personhood begins at conception, you'd say that that's the least arbitrary position in terms of personhood that membership in a natural kind like human being is a good ground for personhood. Does that sound right? Yeah. Do I have you right? Okay. Um, now, membership in a kind, you establish the kind, the natural kind, as as what? What, what would you say? A rational be, animal or something like that? Yeah, to be a human being. And it, 
and that's an ability to talk like Aristotle or how would you? Well, no, I wouldn't say the ability to talk. I would say is having a rational nature. So there are some human beings that are disabled. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're mentally handicapped, for example. And so they're unable to talk on my view. Those are not counterexamples. No, on my view, a disabled human being has equal basic rights to you or me. In other words, I don't think we should discriminate against disabled human beings. Why would they not be counterexamples, though? How would they not be counterexamples to to human beings? Yeah, because when you talk about, yeah, because when you talk about, say... Sounds functional is what I'm getting at. It sounds like a functional criterion. Yeah, so here's the way to think about it. Um, To have a rational nature is not the same thing as doing rational activity. In other words, you can have a rational nature and for whatever reason of being handicapped or being too young, you may be unable to do rational activity. So it's similar in a way to having a sexual nature as a male or female on the one hand and doing sexual activity of a distinctly male or female kind on the other. So in other words, you could have a five-year-old boy and he is a male but is he old enough to reproduce? Well, no, he can't do reproductive activity of a male at five years old. You could have a five-year-old girl. Is she a female human being? Yes, she is. But at five years old, she's incapable of doing distinctly female reproductive activity. She can't have a child yet at five years old. So you can have someone who has a rational nature and yet is unable to exercise that rational nature because they're too young, or maybe they're too old, or they're disabled, or whatever, but they still have a rational nature. And in fact, even to diagnose someone as disabled is to presuppose that they have a rational nature. In other words, if you have a boy who's disabled, let's say he's 12, and he can't talk, the doctors know there's something wrong with his development. Whereas if I have a 12-year-old dog who can't talk, there's no problem there at all. The dog has a different kind of nature than the boy. If a boy, given his nature, can't talk at the age of 12, we know there's a problem. He's got some kind of disability. But a dog or a cat or a tree or a rock who can't talk at the age of 12, that's not a disability. Right. And so you determine what counts as a disability based on a supposition of the nature of the individual in kind. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. You gave the example of reading, too um, as a, as a flourishing ability, if, uh, it would be sad if somebody couldn't read, um, but it wouldn't be sad if a I don't, I can't remember exactly the example, but I wanted to close us out today by just, uh, asking about adoption and, and other, uh, alternatives that people might n- not really think about, uh, if they're in a position where they're pregnant and not, they don't want to be pregnant. Um, what alternatives do people have? Well, you're right. Adoption is a a beautiful alternative. And I myself uh, am the beneficiary of that. So uh, my birth mother uh, had an unplanned pregnancy and she was very much in a situation where uh, there was a student and she was wanted to finish her education and really a situation of of grave uh, difficulty for her. And so I am incredibly grateful to her that she chose to place me for adoption. And then I was uh, accepted into a beautiful and loving family and raised by them. 
And, you know, many years later, I actually got to meet my birth mother and embrace her and thank her for the gift of life that she gave to me. And it involved great sacrifice on her part. And I am unbelievably indebted uh, to her. And my kids are unbelievably indebted to her. And her heroic action, uh, you know, not only enabled me to live, but enabled all my children to have a life too. So I really would encourage anyone in a crisis pregnancy to really think carefully about the life that they could save and the heroism that they could show through giving someone the chance to have a life. And I also would encourage people, everyone, to support those that are undergoing a crisis pregnancy. This is a very difficult situation. And the women who are in these situations need our love and support. And I think there's a serious duty of all people of goodwill, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, to give support and to help women in crisis pregnancies, and then to help young families that may be struggling. This is something that I think all people of goodwill have a very serious obligation to do. Um, And so I I do think I'm very uh, positive about adoption in part because I've been such a a huge beneficiary of it myself. Chris Kayser, you are a man who walks his walk, walks his talk. And uh, I know you personally, and, and you're a wonderful example of that. And you're also just a delightful example of a careful thinker and someone who helps us reason through these tough issues. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chris Kayser. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on the podcast and appreciate your questions and the great conversation. So thank you very much for your kind words.